on a study of John and instead of uh, looking at it uh, as just a series of chapters uh, I have tried to pin down uh, the themes that John is touching upon as he goes through these different uh, events Um, uh, now the idea of John being arranged according to themes is nothing new and uh, but when I when I talked to my resource about it, who's I don't want to name him, but his initials are Brian Dinker. He uh, told me that yes, there's been things written on this, and they're all extremely academic. Uh, and indeed, when I did an internet search for resources, I came up completely empty. You know, there's I could not find anything. There you go. Uh, couldn't find anything um, in in the you know the regular mass book media. So uh, what I did is I over the last couple years or so I've just been going through John and and with this mindset and just kind of picking out what uh, seems to be apparent. Um, so it's it's in no way the last word on the subject. And it's also still uh, a work in progress, and it probably will never really be finished. Uh, but uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it will be helpful. Um, uh, we're not going to be going through the gospel verse by verse, um, but we will be going through chapter by chapter. And what I'll do is I'll be pulling out key verses uh, that kind of illustrate the, the themes that we're going through. And we will be doing some jumping around uh, within Scripture as we go. Now, I had some trouble. I'll get into this more specifically in a little bit. But I had some trouble you know, actually working out an organization for this. Uh, so this is what's on the handout. I came up with three different ways of trying to illustrate uh, the structure in John. And the front is uh, simply like an outline as if you were going to write a paper. Uh, uh, so, but if that, doesn't, if that doesn't work for you, I set up a graphic on the back. I, I, I uh, figured that the structure of John is triangular. Uh, so I, I worked up, and this obviously is the simplest approach uh, to the themes. Um, but I, I worked out that kind of graphic view of how it works, how it runs. And then the bottom of that, that side of the page is uh, just kind of a table, uh, kind of a three-legged stool um, where uh, it's uh, kind of half graphic, half just reading. Uh, so hopefully one of these will strike a chord with you. They're all, they're all intended to express the same thing. But you know, not everybody's brain works the same way. So hopefully, one of these things will be will stand out as being understandable as we go through this. 
And uh, I'm hoping, I mean, my real goal for this is that it could be a framework for each of us to understand John's approach better and uh, maybe, you know, helping us in our personal reading and our personal studies of John. Uh, and it, it can apply to other, this approach can apply to other Gospels as well. Uh, I'm reading through Matthew right now in my, my personal time, and uh, I mean, there's obviously a chapter on parables. There's a chapter on Jesus asserting his different levels of authority. There's a chapter of people challenging Jesus. There's a chapter of like nothing but healing miracles. So it's, it's uh, Matthew is organized in a way too that is somewhat thematic. But Matthew also apparently has a chronology. John does not. <laughs> so... So we'll get into that. So any any thoughts about any of that before we actually get into it? I think that was kind of done on purpose by Jesus, actually, when he recruited the disciples. Because like Matthew, you're talking about, he's like a chronicle, like an archivist. And you can really read that and how he describes it. They went here. They did this. They left here, then went here. John kind of reads like if Jesus was a uh, a fictional character. It's kind of like you can see story arcs, you can see conclusions, you can see... Um, it reads like a literature story, which I think, you know, is kind of like the disciple, you know? John was more emotional than Matthew, and I think all of this was by design, the way that certain disciples wrote certain things, because if it was just about telling what happened, there you could just do it with one person, but the fact that they had multiple people telling the same story there's there's right. purpose in that yeah I mean that definitely each gospel writer had their own point of view and what they specifically wanted to get across about Jesus and we'll get into that uh, more in just a little bit any any other uh, thoughts all right well the uh, as you can see from your handout the uh, overall theme of the gospel is life and he says this flatly in uh, chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name so uh, this this comes up uh all the time uh, in this in this gospel, and uh, what John does is he records events and then attaches teaching to them. In most cases, uh, so their importance, the importance of these events, are not when they happen chronologically, but where they happen within the narrative of John's gospel. So he can bring in the teaching that Jesus does. So this. Uh, this uh, overall theme of life uh, is kind of an umbrella over three sub-themes, which I have decided to call a triad, which is a literary term, but it's like three three branches or or three three paths uh, within the narrative. And these sub-themes are organized around three Passovers. Uh, and each one of these Passovers, uh, or each one of these themes, 
uh, contain a number of individual themes. So that's, that's going to be our approach. Also, each thematic group has a sacramental connection involving the seven signs. So, we all know the seven signs, right? <laughs> the, the first sign uh, is turning water into wine, and the Eucharistic element is the wine. Uh, the second sign is healing the nobleman's son, which uh, foreshadows the inclusion of Gentiles. The third sign is healing the paralytic on the Sabbath. And that is the first of the triads, uh, the theme of the first of the triads, which is uh, the fundamental redemptive work. Uh, then the fourth sign is feeding the 5,000, and it has a sacramental uh, slash Eucharistic element in the bread. Uh, the fifth sign is walking on water. The sixth sign is healing the man born blind. And this uh, falls under the second triad, which is Jesus addressing Moses and the law. And then the seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus. And this is uh, the, sacral, the sacramental element here is baptism. This is, this is a... Uh, figure, this, this is a resurrection, which is the figure of baptism, which is a figure of Christ's resurrection <laughs> and our resurrection. Um, and this is uh, where Jesus ends the signs and begins the realities. That's where his uh, work of his passion uh, really begins in this gospel. So any, any thoughts or questions or comments on that? There's also a nod to the calendar feasts within the gospel. And so, of course, Passover is a big deal in in that context as well. Okay, so, and this this gets to kind of what Jim was talking about a minute ago. Uh, We need to ask, what is a gospel? So, any thoughts? Well, how would you define a gospel? It means good news. So then what is, if you were to write a gospel, what would it be about? (laughs) Yes, you would be writing about good news. So, so what is a gospel not? (laughs) Bad news. It's not bad news. So it's not a newspaper. It is not a, a journalistic report. It's not a history. It's not a biography. It is something to report the good news, 
to express the good news. And this is why we have four Gospels, and they're all different. John is vastly different from the other three, but they're all Gospels because they are expressing the good news. And uh, so, any any further thoughts or discussion on that? Well, I think Amen. <laughs> whenever I'm thinking about John, if to compartmentalize it, it uh, it's like two things kind of pop out. It's like uh, life over death and love over fear. Because I like the way you mentioned like the seven signs. It starts off, first of all, if you don't have and God sees that you need it, you know, create, a, create it out of nothing on multiple occasions. And that's one thing most people worry about first is I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And that fits upon, you know, he's making the wine, he's uh, manifesting the loaves and fishes and all that. And then it goes on and says like, these things that will cause you like death, starving, dying of thirst, illness, he takes care of that too. And at the very end, it's like, yes, just follow me and I'll take care of you. You know, that's, that's, about, uh, that's about the best love letter you can. Everything you worry about, follow him and he'll take care of you. You know. All right. So, what is it about John? John, you know, we've got the synoptics, which kind of means the same. And then, and then we've got John. Um, John was, you know, according to tradition, the last gospel written uh, late in the first century. Uh, and many of the events that John includes are not in the other gospels. Uh, and many importance he did not include... Uh, including like the baptism of Jesus and the Last Supper, um, are not in his gospel, uh, except for obliquely. Some of them are mentioned kind of hinting at them sideways. So he's not really interested in just in writing about the same stuff that you already know. Uh, but he's trying to get ideas across, so he uses these other events that he knows illustrate uh, uh, this variety of ideas. Um, and even though he doesn't have have the baptism or the Last Supper, the sacramental elements are very intrinsic to his themes. You know, they play a very big uh, big part in the in his uh, themes, his presentation of the of the gospel. Uh, there's also um, ongoing connections, like I mentioned, to the calendar of feasts. To John the Baptist, and there's there's kind of an importance of locations too within the gospel. So we'll be uh, noting that as we go along. Now, I'm sorry, go ahead. Wouldn't you say though too that, and you may be going to get into this, but that John also maybe gets deeper into the just the theological aspects of Christ, with the logos, and the, you know. Word for you know, in the beginning and so forth. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. We'll we'll touch on that okay. here in a minute. I forgot to mention that the third triad, uh, the third triad that begins at the raising of Lazarus, mm-hmm. is basically God the Son. Mm-hmm. He's declaring himself to be God, God the Son, Son of the Father, and and yeah. so forth with with some high the- theology involved. 
Okay, once again, the theme focuses upon life. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Life with belief in Christ being the vehicle. Uh, This word, along with the words live and living, appear 62 times. Uh, John records events and then attaches teaching to them, all of which lead to um, uh, misunderstanding and conflict within the Jewish community. So this is something that we'll be uh, seeing over and over again. Um, There is a... uh, I'm going to get into this more later, but there there is a recurring uh, usage of replacement. Um, for instance, the wine at the wedding of Cana replacing the uh, uh, purification water. Uh, uh, this is something that comes up quite often, and, and this is creating conflict among the Jewish officials. Um, now, the importance, uh, I've already said that. Uh, now it's again it's organized around three Passovers Um, this is the only book of scripture that uses the term Lamb of God Uh, and it's John the Baptist who says it Um, uh, so I mean that's obviously a Passover uh, statement Um, there are three thematic groups and there are three sacramental uh, connections among the seven signs so there's that number uh, that number three is is important. Um, obviously, I'm just going through bits and pieces here. It, it would be right, would it not, to, to say that Jesus' ministry basically encompassed these three Passovers, and, and that was it. I mean, that was his ministry time on earth. Um, well, uh, if you. you if we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but if you start with the Passover, yeah. John starts with the Passover, yeah. uh, then two more Passovers would right. be two years. And typically well, we think of three years passing. But these may not be different Passovers. It's mentioned three times. Certainly the last one is is a unique Passover. But the other two may be they may not be different Passovers. They may not have been consecutive Passovers. They may not be Passovers in the right order. Uh, but, uh, you know, John, John mentions Passover. It was Passover, or Passover was at hand. Every time he kind of turns a corner. So, but we'll see, we'll see that more as we go along. Um, that Lamb of God point that you made about uh, being the only gospel that calls him that, um, that's, that's consistent with... John being the author of Revelation too, since he's called yeah. that in Revelation. So yeah. you know, that, that's good evidence to the yeah. authorship of the one of one that one apostle. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> well, but John, John the apostle recorded it. Yeah, yeah, I know he's the only apostle recorded it. All right, so identified a triad of the three themes. Uh, we've already gone over that. More or less. Um, There's a prologue at the beginning that presents the deity of Christ. And then there's an epilogue at the end that presents the deity of Christ. So that's why we have this triangular structure where it starts high 
and then goes down, goes along the ground, and then climbs back up. You can think of the triangle as a mountain if you want to, and, and at the mountain top are are the prologue and the epilogue. Uh, uh, so uh, this is similar but not the same as uh, the chiastic structure which uh, Connor has talked about often uh, where a, a book kind of climbs uh, a, a, a ladder to the high point of the book and it climbs down the other side of the ladder with uh, events and ideas and imagery that mirrors the climb up the ladder. And so you end up at the same place at the bottom, at the end of the book. You kind of you are at the same place where you started from. If I mean, that's, I'm being very clumsy here, but is that kind of it in a nutshell? Uh, there, there is a guy I found online, and uh, I, his name appears to be uh, Hajime Murai. He's in Japan. I assume that he's Japanese, even though Marai sounds more, more like East Indian. But apparently, and I don't know a thing about him, okay? He, he is apparently a university professor. But apparently his life's work is to work out the chiastic uh, structure of every book of the Bible. <laughs> so, um, now this, I, to me, this doesn't really work for gospel, because the high point of a gospel is never in the middle. It's always at the end. You know, the, the uh, uh, death, burial, uh, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Uh, but uh, he, he, at the top of his chiasm for John, he has the raising of Lazarus. And indeed, every commentator I found agrees that this is the high point of the, of the gospel. Uh, uh, so, or at least the key event of the gospel. Uh, so, and that is, like I say, that is where John turns away from just reporting signs and teaching to the reality, uh, the, 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 his, his real, his really real work, <laughs> uh, and what he was sent for, um, to fulfill all these themes. And this is where the opposition of the Jewish authorities uh, turns on also. It is after he raised Lazarus that they decide to kill him. They've got to get rid of this guy and Lazarus too while, you, while you're at it. <laughs> uh, but there are uh, examples of uh, chiasm. Um, uh, for instance, the essential question, which I'll get to in a little bit, is fully answered in chapter 1 and also in chapter 21. So it's where you start and where you end. So, having blathered on like an idiot for almost a half an hour, uh, this is my resolution. This is my premise. John lists events in terms of developing themes rather than chronology. He does this to express truths about Christ and his mission. Uh, I think there is a telling statement here in John in chapter 9, verse 3. Of course, we all know chapter 9 is what? Healing the man who was born blind. And the question is, who is sinful here? 
And his answer is, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So this is uh, the cause of his blindness and the effect of his healing uh, are really secondary to what the event reveals about God. And that's, I think that's John's point in every one of his events. You know, what, what is revealed about God in this? And, you know, feeding 5,000 people, that's secondary. Necessary to them, but secondary. So here's, here's an example. In chapter 6, I'm going to read 51 through 58. <clears throat> I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up that last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So the ancient church saw Jesus teaching here to be clearly Eucharistic. He is the bread and his blood is the wine. Uh, but just rather than just reporting again the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper, John uses this teaching to reveal the significance and truth of it uh, with Christ's own words. And it's presented early in his gospel, it's chapter 6. So, uh, so what the events that he talks about are just an ends to a, a mean to an ends, a means to an end. <laughs> um, and it is what we can draw out of it that is important. And this is why so many times an event is followed by teaching. This is what this really means. Uh, this is what can benefit you, you know, going forward or, or give you life going forward. So any, any more, any conversation about that? I can think of examples that fit exactly what you're saying gospel like the woman at the well and the, the, and the uh, water of life you know water the, and, and, and all these things they're, they're physical things that people would think it's just about physical needs but there's a yeah. spiritual reality that's being to know there right. you know so yeah, that definitely I think I think you're right John is the eagle right of the creatures uh, yeah typically uh, is considered. What the eagle has over other animals in terms of sight is not it's not the fact that he can see everything. It's that he can discern. Yeah. You know his prey in the midst of. Yeah, in the, the, in the midst of everything. Yeah. He has so, the eagle eye. <laughs> yeah. The eagle eye is to is the ability to make sense. You know. Yeah. Everything. Well, so, and to see it from far off as so well. John, you know, John's gospel, what it does is it it's not. 
out uh, you know, every every single detail mm-hmm. of Christ's life. And I think he actually says this. There are plenty of other things that are written that I didn't include. Right. I wrote these specific things so that you would be able to discern mm-hmm. what you're supposed to take away. Yeah. So, well, it kind of boils down for me, like, uh, I keep going back to breath, like where it says Scripture is God-breathed, mm-hmm. it's living word. If you're looking for the Spirit, you don't try to find it because you can't see it. It's like the wind, and you can see what effect it has. And, I mean, anybody who's ever written anything realizes that they start off with, like, an outline of how they want the story to go. But then all of a sudden, I never saw that character doing this. It's like the greatest feeling in the world for a writer is when they feel like their characters are becoming so well fleshed out, they start making decisions on their own. Well, I didn't plan on killing them, but there you go, you know. And I think that's kind of the same way, you know. We're supposed to, when you have something that's living, like they call the Bible the living word, it's something you've got to internalize. And that goes par and par with, like, the sacraments. You've got to ingest it. It's got to become a part of you. Mm. And I, I, can just, I just see that. It's amazing. Like, given the time period, they probably didn't have a lot of paper and ink, so probably the disciples made notes and then went back and wrote it out more professionally and in-depth later. I can just imagine them sitting there going like, oi vey, that's what that means, you know? Maybe not using oi vey, but you know. Probably not. Yeah, but I just think that's... Mama mia. How, and it, <laughs> it kind of goes part and parcel because God is the master of creating something out of nothing that'll last eternally. Mm-hmm. And that goes with all the themes there. Any other thoughts? I'll just add one more thing. It seems like there's always this tension between, you know, the people that don't know the gospel that or haven't received it yet um, tend to only think in terms of meeting their physical needs. And that's you see this in tension yeah. with you have this tension, for instance, in missions where you know you have uh, the spiritual needs and the and the uh, physical needs of people being that. And so it, it seems like you see that in Christian history, you see that today with evangelism and missions and, and so forth, that sometimes there's a tension there. Because people don't always want to hear the spiritual truth, but they want their physical needs met. Right. You know? So it's... Um, yeah, we were talking about the prosperity gospel. The other yeah, day. yeah. So it's... Uh, it's a, I don't know. It's just interesting how that yeah. plays out sometimes in, yeah. in the real world. But there's a benefit in having a starting point for compassion. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. something that uh, uh, people of the Jewish faith, when they're practicing like therapy, they say, well, before we talk about what the underlying issue of this, they make their people that are there talking to it eat something. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they realize there's... Uh, you got your body, you got your mind, and you also got your spirit. If one of those are out of whack, you're not going to be able to feel anything. Sure. So, well, I mean, Jesus wants yeah. us to be compassionate, period. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but yeah. I, I agree with you as well. It's like when you, uh, if you uh, give too much credence to the physical, I mean, you get stuff like gluttony, and you can mm-hmm. die by eating too much of the wrong thing. I mean, the only thing you can't overdose on is the spiritual side. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's safe to say that the physical needs are important, and Jesus saw to a lot of physical needs because we are one, you know, incorporated body, soul, and spirit being. Um, 
but there are with every spirit every physical need there is an accompanying spiritual need that you perhaps are not recognizing (laughs) would you think that was kind of the um, uh, priests of the times problem was they took everything a bit too literally and even Jesus got frustrated and says how can you not see this just think of why I'm saying this and the lust for power oh yeah I mean I just got done reading Zechariah too and uh, the Jewish officials were utterly you know materialistic and the Gnostics went so far as to call Christians cannibals because they said they're supposed to eat flesh and blood it's like think Think well we're, we're we're about to start talking about the Gnostics a little bit if we get that far yeah, just don't become one. Warning. Warning, Will Robinson. Okay, so uh, once again, we've got uh, this layout of John. It starts with a prologue, and then there is the first Passover that he reports, his first report of Passover with a sacrament, then the second reported Passover with a sacrament, the third reported Passover with a sacrament, and then the epilogue. So this is this is uh, what the handout is all about, and this is uh, you know what I, the structure that I'm going to be following, for better or for worse. And this, keep in mind, this is just a framework for hopefully digging out treasures old and new. So we'll start with the prologue. What would you say if you had to guess? What would be like the key? Idea or word in the in the prologue. Word. <laughs> yes, logos. Um, the logos was a Greek philosophical concept uh, that predated the incarnation. Now I've been through this before, and I probably won't get done with it today. Uh, but it's it's good good information to be reminded of. Uh, in Platonic thought. Uh, this word was used to communicate the archetype, archetypal idea. Now, uh, I'm not a scholar of Plato. I, I've read uh, the Cave, I think, and that's it. But uh, if you if you're familiar with his writings at all, you know the archetypal idea is uh, very important to his thoughts, uh, to his philosophy, and it's it's. Not just that you can uh, conceive of a uh, an archetypal, you know, as the utmost of something, but that the idea here of something, like the idea of a table, the archetypal idea of a table, is far beyond any table you could produce. So it's it's a very philosophical uh, approach two things and it's kind of gets into a metaphysical existence of things and and logos was the word uh, used to uh, uh, express this in stoic thought logos is used to communicate the universal reason stoics were people who ran completely toward reason and you know suffering was just you were just meant to bear up under it and move on you know uh they were very stoic <laughs> uh and the, the goal of universal reason was of becoming a clear and unbiased thinker so this is their idea of logos 
now in, in the Targumim, Targum, Targumim, it's a group of Jewish writings that rose out of the captivity, uh, similar to the Talmud and the Mishra. Uh, this is a whole other body of war, uh, writings. They used uh, the word Mimra, uh, which uh, was used to express God <coughs> revealing himself. And Mimra is uh, the Hebrew equivalent of Logos. Um, in the writings, it is not used as a substitute for any of God's names, but for a personal, personalized revealing of God. Uh, and there's, there's not, uh, they don't make any connection between the Mimra and the Messiah. It's just there. It's just a personal revealing of God, you know, whatever that means. All right, in the Apocrypha, or the pseudo-canon, as uh, we might call it, uh, this, is, this is within the body of uh, works that the Orthodox and the Catholic accept as, as Scripture. The idea of wisdom is a special subsistence is uh, extended from Proverbs, you know, particularly Proverbs 8, that has so much to do uh, with wisdom. Um, so, uh, I'm going to read to you from the Wisdom of Solomon. It's one of the books that uh, Connor touched upon, uh, but this uh, this uh, particular passage is, he didn't deal with. This is from chapter 18, verses 14 through 16. For while gentle silence embraced everything, and night at its own speed was half over, your all-powerful logos leaped from heaven from the royal throne into the midst of a doomed land a relentless warrior carrying the sharp sword of your irrevocable command and he stood and filled all things with death and touched heaven while standing on earth any comments on that? touched heaven while standing on earth yeah. uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here but he's, uh, this answers Job's lament that there is no one who can put his hand on my shoulder and God's shoulder mm-hmm. uh, well the, the logos fulfilled that uh, my old buddy Rabanus Morris uh, has this to say, he was a church father from uh, around the same time as Charlemagne God's word that arrives at midnight is God's son who acts in Egypt and at the present hour. What is the word of the Lord if not the son of God? He now saves the multitude of believers through the waters of baptism at the same time destroying the huge army of spiritual enemies. So he filled all things with death. He stood and filled all things with death. I think we could take that as standing after his resurrection and, and declared the doom of his enemies. 
Yeah. I keep going back to the beginning of the chapter. And I think those first few sentences pretty much, for me anyways, uh, sums it up pretty successfully. It's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that those first few sentences uh, wraps it up for me, I think. Because you know, when you're talking, I don't know if the Greeks had any other word for a collection of thoughts or philosophies other than logos. But it's kind of like you can, there, there's a different differentiation between the Bible and a book about the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, you give authority and credence and more weight to one or the other. I didn't know if the Greeks had any other. They have another word for word, at least one, one other word, rima, rima and that usually refers to a written word. Yeah, I was going to ask if anybody knew to contrast rima word and logos word. I've studied it a little bit before, but it's always puzzling a bit. Mm-hmm. It, it overlaps. It's not exactly distinct. Uh, but in general, Rayla tends to be written word text, and Logos tends to be more about the spoken word, or more even the thought behind the spoken word. Mm-hmm. The Google stasis. Yeah. The so when God speaks in Genesis 1, that's Logos. That's yeah. not Rayla. That's the Logos. So you're saying they should have named the Library of Union Rima. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and for, them, and for them to call knowledge the Logos <laughs> okay, so as Connor says, I mean the, the point here the point here is not for you to believe the writings in the in the wisdom of Solomon <laughs> or any of these other writings. Uh, the point here is that logos was a well established idea in Jewish thought and Greek thought, uh, and it was a melding. And we'll I'm going to cut off now because it's time, but uh, we'll see that. I'll pick up here uh, next week with Philo of Alexander or Alexandria, who really meshes together Jewish and, and uh, Gentile Greek thought around the logos. So, unless there's any final thoughts or exclamations, perhaps they want the logos library to be what comes out of the studies there. <laughs> <laughs> And it's, it's, Is that a defense? It's more suggestive as being a center of learning rather than saying, this here be the library. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thank you for your work. You bet. We'll meet back.